really enjoyed working with that population because they were the outsiders. And of course, being a confirmed bardophile, Shakespeare loves to write about characters that are outsiders. And I found a, a kinship with Shakespeare's characters and with these young people that I was working with. Hello and welcome to The State of Shakespeare. I'm Garrett Vandermeer. And I'm Jim Elliott. And today on the program we have Kurt Toffland. Welcome, Kurt. Thank you. Glad to be here. Kurt Toftland brings 39 years of professional theater experience to his current role as a freelance theater artist, director, actor, producer, playwright, writer, teacher, program developer, prison arts practitioner, and consultant. Kurt is the founder of the internationally acclaimed Shakespeare Behind Bars program, which is now in its 22nd year. And from 1989 to 2008, he was the producing artistic director of the Kentucky Shakespeare Festival. As a professional director and equity actor, Kurt has over 200 professional productions to his credit and has presented over 400 performances of his one-man show, Shakespeare's Clowns, A Fool's Guide to Shakespeare. Welcome, Kurt! Thank you. Thanks for having me. We're delighted to have you on the program. So happy to be here. Take us back to the very beginning of... Shakespeare behind bars. How did you go from the germination of the idea to, to actually stepping into the prison for the first time? Well, that's a very, very long journey that gets traced back. And of course, when you're going through something, you, you don't know what path you're on. You're sort of bushwhacking through the wilderness. But eventually, when you get to a high point, you turn back and you see the trail and the trail is quite clear. So this is only through reflection. I didn't recognize this necessarily when I was in the middle of it. But ultimately, what I believe is that arts are more than entertainment. I believe that arts have the inherent ability to change behavior, to change minds, to change lives. I know that to be true because I bear witness to it in my own life of how working in theater helped to involve me as a compassionate and empathetic human being. So I realized, well, why would I be any different than anyone else? If it works for me, why can't it work for others? So I've always pursued the arts, not only as a vehicle for entertainment, but as a vehicle for change, which, of course, led me down the road of, a, of an arts practitioner in education. And eventually, I developed a specialty for working with kids that were the tough nut kids, the kids that were labeled as disciplinarian problems or uh, developmentally challenged and you know, fast forward a number of years and I was working with kids on the street, which led me then into juvenile justice and working with boys that had been charged with crimes and now were in a correctional situation. And that led me to sociologist Dr. Kurt Bergstrand from Bellarmine University, who had created a program he called Books Behind Bars, which was a literacy-based program. And what he was doing was uh, working with a couple of middle school teachers in a very high-risk middle school in Louisville and a group of prisoners. And what he was putting into the center of those two circles was a book by S.E. Hinton, her most famous books, The Outsiders. And the men in prison read the book, the kids, the students read the book, and they facilitated a conversation between the two groups. Kurt's idea was that if those kids could see the inner sanctum of a prison, perhaps it might make them wake up and realize that they were on a trajectory that they didn't want to end up in prison. And I called Kurt up and uh, I was really interested in exploring this prison idea. I'd never been in a prison before, but I thought 
that all men, women in prison had been juvenile delinquents. I was naive, and I thought if I could find some way of having a conversation with them that perhaps they could suggest an intervention. And I suggested to him that reading a book can create an opportunity for the reader to become empathetic, to understand a world that he or she did not operate in or didn't understand. I said, well, and I said, dramas goes to an even deeper level, and particularly the works of William Shakespeare. I said, the young person or the prisoner has to inhabit a character and has to really deal with what motivates the character to do what it is that they do. He didn't have any experience in drama, but he was really fascinated by it, and he invited me to become a part of Books Behind Bars. In the spring of the year, both groups would read a play by Shakespeare. Each group would then produce a scene, the same scene, and they would come together and they would perform for each other. And that was the early germination in the early 90s of the Shakespeare Behind Bars component of Books Behind Bars. Eventually what happened in 95 is I did a master class in the prisons. So I asked the uh, other psychologist, Dr. Julie Bartow, if I could come back and continue to work with the men. She became my prison sponsor and eventually about a dozen guys uh, uh, joined and founded the Shakespeare Behind Bars program. To what do you credit the longevity of the program? Wow, I guess persistence. <laughs> never, uh, never giving up. I am endlessly fascinated by the work behind the razor wire. And I, I guess I, I would attribute my success to a fundamental treatise, and that is that I am a guest in their house. Is that a, a hard-won lesson in 22 years of experience? Yeah, I think most of the lessons, I think, in life are, are certainly the deepest lessons are often very, very hard-won. I've made innumerable mistakes along the way, but never a mistake that ever threatened security or, or threatened the Department of Corrections. Well, you mentioned security, and tell us what it's like to step behind the razor wire, as you say, and begin. Prisons are simply uh, like a Campbell's Soup tomato can, and what I mean by that is is that it's the real world with, with the air sucked out of it. Everything that happens in the real world happens behind bars, and so stepping into the prison world is... A world of containment, a world of suspicion, a world of lots and lots of negative things. What I try to bring in with me is is the idea of hope. So stepping in with a positive outlook, stepping in with hope, stepping in with a view that all human beings are inherently good and that that goodness is oftentimes buried deep within the prisoners because of the world that they came from the poverty, the violence, the gangs, the uh, addictions. That's the way they grew up and it's the way they viewed the world. And I try to bring in a different way of viewing the world. And I believe profoundly that goodness is in there and that it just takes time to call it forth. Now, when you step into the environment, do you find yourself instantly welcome? Well, it just depends. Prisons love routines. Both the prison staff, correctional officers, and prisoners are very much geared towards a routine, and any disturbance of that routine causes a ripple, and there can be pushback from that ripple. So what I try very hard to do is to become a part of the routine. 
Now, on occasion, uh, you run into an officer you haven't worked with before or met before, and they may view that corrections is about punishment and that prisoners should not be having a good time doing Shakespeare or enjoying themselves. And so I, again, I don't push back against that point of view because I'm not there to change their mind. The goal is to be allowed to get in so that I can meet in a room with a group of prisoners that I'm working with. You've also expanded the program to other prison systems, is that correct? Yeah, the program has been the genesis, I guess, the germination for other programs around the country, around the world. I am now living in Michigan. I moved there in 2008, and so we have new programs, Shakespeare Behind Bars programs that are in Michigan. And then I've worked in Australia in a prison that was doing Shakespeare. Then I went to New Zealand and created a program in a prison that's still running there. Well, after 22 years, you must have some very interesting stories and experiences that uh, you've gone through. Would you care to share? Well, really, my, my life working behind the razor wire has been of more influence in me as a human and as an artist than vice versa. There are three noble truths that I've discovered about this work, and I've written about it. First is that human beings need a tribe. They need some group to belong to unless mental illness is a major factor. But if mental illness is not something that's a factor that leads to isolationism, human beings need to belong to a tribe. So Shakespeare Behind Bars is the tribe. And human beings need to have story. We're narrative creatures. And so we have to have story, and we have to have the tools to tell story. And of course, Shakespeare tells stories because when we hear story, only two things happen. One is we go, oh, you too, which means we've had a a similar experience in our life. Or we go, man, that's not in my frame of reference. I have no experience in that. But oh, your experience has has broken my heart, which means we have empathy or compassion for the storyteller. Um, And the third is reflection. And reflection is the only way that I have found that changes human behavior. And reflection is the ability, the tool to go back in time and to re-examine where it is that we came from, all the circumstances that surround it, and what led to our behavior. And of course, when you're working with incarcerated populations, the behavior that led them to prison, it needs to be examined. But you have to understand where that behavior came from. And oftentimes, it comes from violence, it comes from addiction, It comes from gangs. It comes from poverty. These are not pleasant experiences to go back and and reflect upon. But unless you're going to really understand where your behavior came from, you really have to go back and dig into that. And then once you've examined it and you understand the crime and you take responsibility for the crime, then you have the opportunity to say, well, who do I want to be? I don't have to be just that crime that I committed. I can be more than that. And that's the journey then into who I wish to be. All of these epiphanies that I've had, I don't think I would have had in the same way if I had not been working in the prison population with people that, of course, have suffered great harm and who then, in turn, have oftentimes exerted great harm on other people. That's a tremendous segue to the piece that you've chosen to share with us today. And there's themes of isolation of reflection and and reinvention run through this piece very strongly. Uh, The piece that you've chosen to share with us today is from Richard II. It's King Richard II's speech in Act 5, 
scene five. Could you give us a little background, a little context for the speech, where it occurs in the play and, and what's just happened? It occurs in the play, late in the play. Richard II was a king and he was a very self-centered, egocentric king. He believed that the hierarchy was God himself and then the rest of the world. Consequently, his behavior is atrocious. He does things that are not for the common good. He steals money from his subjects, and he's a very selfish, narcissistic character. Eventually, this all blows up in his face, and he ends up in the tower. And no one escapes from the tower. He knows what his fate is. And as he sits there, he begins to reflect on his life. And this, again, as I said earlier, is one of the treatises of Shakespeare behind bars, is, is that the ability to reflect and the ability through reflection to understand. And Shakespeare uh, often gives characters these moments just before they die of epiphany, of discovery. And this is one, for me, one of the greatest epiphanies and discoveries because there's no one that was so high in English society than King Richard II. And few have fallen from so great a height to as low as he has fallen now as the deposed king and wait, awaiting his own execution. And he starts his reflection by the monologue that is one of my favorite monologues, and it's one of the monologues I use at the very beginning of starting a circle of Shakespeare behind bars, and it's one of the monologues that continues to run through all of the circles that I work with, because the men, when they dig into that monologue, and without any prompting for me, ask me the question when they finish, they look at me and say, wow, did Shakespeare ever do time? How does he have such a deep <laughs> understanding of what it means to be in prison. That's a fascinating question. Wow. Yeah. Well, I'd love to hear you speak this speech. Uh, happy to do that. I have been studying how I may compare this prison where I live unto the world. And for because the world is populous and here is not a creature but myself, I cannot do it. Yet, I'll hammer it out. My brain, I'll prove the female to my soul, my soul the father, and these two beget a generation of still-breeding thoughts, and these same thoughts people this little world in humors, like the people of this world, for no thought is contented. The better sort, as thoughts of things divine, are intermixed with scruples, and do set the word itself against the word, as thus, come, little ones, and then again. It is as hard to come as for a camel to thread the postern of a small needle's eye. Thoughts tending to ambition, they do plot unlikely wonders. How these vain weak nails may tear a passage through the flinty ribs of this hard world, my ragged prison walls. And for they cannot die in their own pride. Thoughts tending to content flatter themselves that they are not the first of fortune slaves, nor shall not be the last, like silly beggars who, sitting in the stocks, refuge their shame that many have and others must sit there. And in this thought they find a kind of ease, bearing their own misfortunes on the backs of others who have as such beheld the like. Thus play I in one prison many people and none contented. 
but whate'er I am. Nor I, nor any man that but man is, with nothing shall be pleased till he be eased. With being, nothing. Thank you. There are some judicious edits in there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, you mentioned that the reaction, the initial reaction that you frequently encounter when first introducing this piece in the circle at Shakespeare Behind Bars is that whether Shakespeare ever spent time <laughs> behind bars himself, and did, do you have a speculation about that? Well, there's some historical record of, I think, his father being arrested for poaching a deer. And I, I, I suspect that, although he may never have done time, he certainly worked with people who had p- potentially done crime. So whether or not he actually was behind bars, I, I think if that's not in his biography, then it's certainly within his dramatic imagination. And that's really what his great gift was, is to make this leap into dramatic imagination and, dis- and, and to write plays that are so profoundly human. It's, it certainly reaches to the core of, of what it means to be and feel uh, isolated yeah. in the worst possible way. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. And, it, and after this monologue, the, the assassins come in and he's killed. Right. So this is the last big speech that he has. When dealing with the prisoners in the speech, how do they handle the language? Well, the language is a very visceral language. I learned everything I needed to know about sharing Shakespeare with others by working a lot in middle schools. And if you can capture a middle schooler's imagination, you can capture anyone's imagination. So I always recommend that when people want to prepare themselves for this work, I say go to a middle school and, and present Shakespeare to them. And if you can be successful there, you can be successful anywhere. And it's the same approach. I use the same approach wherever I go with any population that I'm doing Shakespeare with, whether they're totally ignorant about Shakespeare or whether they're highly knowledgeable. And that is is to, to uh, become a word detective, to use uh, lexicons to understand the word and, the, and then the context of the word. So it becomes a really exciting project that it's our job to discern what it is that Shakespeare meant when he says something. And, of course, for me, to implicitly trust that Shakespeare, although he may have had 50 words that he could use in a particular situation, used the word that was precisely right. Mm. And it's my job to unpack that and understand what it is that I think, to the best of my ability, that I think he, he was after. So once you remove the Shakespeare mm-hmm. from the population that you're working with, they just become automatically engaged in it because there's so many relevant truths and there's so much biography in Shakespeare and there's so much dramatic imagination in Shakespeare that they really get connected and fired up about that. And then it's almost impossible to turn them off from it because they, they become so engaged. I'm curious because you, you mentioned that the core principle of Shakespeare behind bars for you is the idea of hope, of offering hope. And to, to open with this monologue seems, well, where is the hope in this monologue? Well, the hope, I think, in the monologue is that he eventually gets there. You know, he starts off and he's one of the, my favorite lines, which is the only thing that you can have if you're going to have hope is he says, I'll hammer it out. That means I'm, I'm not going to give up. So right in the early part of the monologue, I'll, yet I'll hammer it out. And 
And then he goes on to explore three different kinds of thoughts that start with divinity and, and then lead to ambition. And of course, he, divinity, he thought he was divine and ambition was he was the king. And then contentment was he was contented being the king and he didn't have to really look at what damage he was doing. And he eventually gets to the point where he says that very, very powerful line, which is quite Zen in its meaning, for me anyway, he says, but whate'er I be, nor I, nor any man that but man is, with nothing shall be pleased till he be eased with being nothing. That's such a powerful state of being to arrive at nothingness, that we are we are insignificant. We're small specks in, in the universe. For him to go from being the sun and referring to himself as, you know, the divine king to arriving at the point of realizing how insignificant he really is. And right after that moment, I didn't do it, but right after that moment, music yeah. is heard. And isn't that beautiful? I mean, that's just Shakespeare, yeah. right? That after right. that moment of understanding what is he bringing he brings in art and he says music do i hear and he listens and then he he says ha ha keep time how sorrow sweet music is when time is broke and no proportion kept so is it in the music of men's lives and here have i the daintiness of ear to check time broke in a disordered string but for the concord of my state and time had not an ear to hear my true time broke i wasted time and now doth time waste me mm. again a profound understanding of how prisoners can either do the time or the time will do them yeah those are the two big themes in the speech thoughts and time yeah and it seems to me he goes back and forth between the torturous time and jangled thoughts and what you're saying is that by the end of the speech he's come to a resolution with those two things. Yeah, and I think a really un deep understanding, it's too bad of course that he he can't have more time, but isn't that true of all of us that when time is slipping away when we are time, as he talks about when he makes himself the clock in that speech, that we, we only wish for more time and we wish we hadn't wasted time and I think that's a profound human discovery, and Shakespeare so beautifully articulates that in this character. And of course, Shakespeare is always trying to hold the mirror up to himself and also hold the mirror up to society. So his plays, I mean, I'm, I'm really surprised how he managed to survive without his head being put on a pike <laughs> because he wrote deeply political and deeply challenging plays that were reflecting the society that he lived in, were reflecting Elizabeth, and eventually were reflecting King James. Well, this is an early play in Shakespeare's canon, and in it I see the roots of First of all, Twelfth Night with the music, the idea of the music, when he says, the music is jarring me enough no more, essentially. Yeah. Right? And then the lines that you quoted, nor I nor any man that but man is with nothing shall be pleased. You hear the echo of Hamlet and his the readiness is all. Yeah. Bit. Yeah, and that's what I love about yeah. Shakespeare is that when you really explore the full canon, you see that there are very, very human explorations that don't just stop in one play, but they appear in other plays. And and I think the success that he had is that he had a very long writing career, and many changes happened to Elizabethan society during his writing career and in the world. And he had a group of artists, other actors that were with him for a long period of time, so collaborators that were with him, and so. 
his gift is, is that he wrote from being a young man to being an old man. And then he just quit and went home. <laughs> he, he had done his time, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. You know, we're, I mean, I'm thankful that we have the work uh, because the work still continues to inform us and will continue to inform, I think, as long as human beings are alive on Earth because it's the examination of, of the inner world of humans and motivations and, and uh, results. In the canon, some good people do bad things, like Macbeth, I think, is a good person, but he does a really bad thing, and, and bad people can do good things or they can be redeemable. I think Richard II, to a certain extent, as a human being, is redeemed in that speech at the end of that tower speech. Kurt, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Kurt, this was fantastic. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you so much. And thank you for listening to The State of Shakespeare. Thanks for joining us for the State of Shakespeare podcast. We invite you to visit stateofshakespeare.com for more episodes, information about each of our guests, and the Shakespeare text you heard on the program, and much more. And we welcome you to join the discussion by liking us on Facebook. That's www.stateofshakespeare.com. Thanks for listening.